watch so many loved ones gone. You are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Hey, welcome everybody. It's Steve Suspidelli. I'm coming at you once again with Michael Graney and Don Brohan, co-authors of Economic Personalism, which, if you haven't bought it yet, give Jeff Bezos your money and buy it. Until <laughs> they get another publishing company, and then you don't have to buy it from Jeff Bezos. But get it anyways. It's a great read. And anyways, we're continuing the series on the Economic Personalism Contra the Great Reset, and this week we're hitting up Papa Francesco, Pope Francis. So, Michael, Don, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Great to be back. Yes, yes, indeed. So, right to it. Pope Francis faces many challenges. I'm reading this directly from what Michael texts me up. <laughs> uh, many challenges these days, including the pandemic, global crisis, and the causing... Did I say pandemic? Plandemic and global economic crisis that are causing the greatest suffering among the most poor and vulnerable. Even the wealthiest have increased their wealth by more than a trillion dollars with rising prices in the stock markets. After being accused by some leaning towards socialism, Pope Francis now is reported to join forces with powerful components or proponents of the Great Reset, also called inclusive capitalism. If you haven't, if you don't know any about that, I can always include in show notes because all that is very true with the guys that are making the top dollar: Bezos, Facebook, Twitter, Amazon. Well, I already said Bezos, Walmart, etc. It's the little guy getting squashed. So, if you could have a thirty-minute meeting with Pope Francis, this is Don and Michael, to introduce him to the concept of economic personalism as a just third way a moral and economically sound alternative to monopolistic capitalism redistributed socialism, what would you say to him? Well, first, we might want to explain why we're seeking um, an, an audience, uh, a meeting with Pope Francis. We recognize that his voice not only is directed towards the Catholic Church, but really to all people around the world. He's uh, a global spokesperson and considered by many a moral authority, and I'm saying many who are not Catholic or even Christian. So he has a platform, and he also has the benefit of the centuries of thinking, and, uh, and particularly in terms of the social encyclicals, on a sound framework that respects the dignity of each human person and uh, looks at this in terms of each person's relationship with the common good as this that network of institutions and laws that we all create over you know eons or at least centuries in order to help us develop as individuals but also then to enable us to contribute to the rest of society and to 
civilization and, and a, a moral system. So right now we see that he, he's considering basically two alternatives in terms of where we go with the economy. And, and as we've mentioned in previous shows, the economy is dealing with our most basic survival needs, not our highest needs in terms of um, how we become more human, how we help others uh, become more human, how we structure um, our systems to enable that. So we're talking now specifically about economics because I, I think that's becomes the most obvious that that's where the problem, much of it starts, is that lack of the uh, means that each person would have to be able to independently uh, produce and sustain each our, ourselves. Um, and this is, of course, within a, uh, the context of working together. It's not everyone go off and be, start their own little farm, but how within our social structure, within our economy, can we have a system that will enable each person to gain their own share of economic power and the ability to uh, be productive and gain affluence? So that's sort of giving you the background of, of why this question even came up, why we are in, in actually trying to uh, meet with Pope Francis. And that was one reason our book was, we wrote the book on economic personalism. So maybe Mike might want to um, uh, give some more comments on, on that. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, to most people it sounds crazy. Oh, we want to meet with the Pope. Well, maybe it does sound crazy, but we've already done it. Once you read the book, you'll see right in the very beginning, we talk about the uh, 1980s when we actually did, when I say we, I mean the Center for Economic and Social Justice and members of Polish Solidarity. Uh, I wasn't there myself. Of course, I should have been, but, uh, but uh, no, we, the, the meeting with Pope, I almost said Pope Francis, Pope John Paul II was actually a follow-up to a meeting that the whole team had with, sort of, with President Reagan, which he was presented with a copy of the task force report from a project that CESJ carried through called the Presidential Task Force for Project Economic Justice, which presented an alternative to liberation theology and Marxism in the Caribbean basin and Central and South America. Uh, the backbone of the whole program was expanded capital ownership. And this one accolades from, you know, very diverse people, even organized labor got behind it, uh, or was at least in favor of it. Uh, which is appropriate since Walter Ruther, before he died, strongly advocated these ideas, which he got from Lewis Kelso. And of course, Mortimer Adler was in there too. <clears throat> but uh, the Union Solidarista de Costa Rica, uh, or what, no, excuse me, uh, Solidarismo Costarricense, sorry, for all those of you who actually can speak Spanish instead of me just reading it off a piece of paper. Uh, uh, Don, what was the name of the gentleman whose name, and I know it like I know my own, uh, from Costa Rica? Uh, oh, uh, Don Alberto. Oh, oh, yeah. Alberto Martin. Uh, 
he was a very important person in the Costa Rican government, and he, I hadn't been able to find out if he was an actual student of Father Heinrich Pesch, the Solidarist, but he was certainly a big fan of his thought. And he saw a cor strong correlation between what Heinrich Pesch said and what Louis Kelso said. And he was able to integrate as much as he could anyway, very political situation with respect to labor economics in Central America. Uh, he was he tried to, in his Solidarismo Costa Ricense, put together Kelso's thought and Pesce's thought into the program of Solidarismo in Central America. Uh, one of our associates in Guatemala right now, uh, Joseph Racinos, is has been trying to do the same thing with the whole Solidarista movement there. But the presidential task force presented a holistic program as it could have been better everything could always be better but it was the best thing that had been promote uh, proposed up to that time president reagan endorsed it in a speech and then was later presented with the with the task force report and this same uh report was presented to pope john paul ii uh in a per, in a private audience in i think it was right outside his library or was it in his library don outside his uh, personal library yeah. yeah and of course it didn't hurt any that we had members of polish solidarity with us for some reason that seemed to resonate with him uh but the meeting almost didn't come off and you you can read the whole story in the the get the book to, to the book yeah. uh, but to say that oh you want to meet with pope francis huh that well that's a pie in the sky dream well mm -hmm. then then maybe so is meeting with Pope St. John Paul II. I'll just call him up real quick. Hey, yeah, Papa Francesco, you got, you got some time for Michael and Don? <laughs> yeah. that, that's almost the way it happened because <laughs> we were scheduled and the meeting was suddenly called off. And then Rabbi Herzl Krantz of, of the Silver Springs Jewish Congregation, as Norm, our, you know, the president of CSJ, like to say, demonstrated the power of the yarmulke and you know, basically persuaded somebody in power to say these people have come all the way from america and from poland we gotta you have to meet with them and he did yeah well we were very fortunate um at that time to have connections uh through not only father Faree, who was uh well known within uh i guess the scholars uh who were uh, who studied Pius XI's encyclicals, and he had been president of several universities. But um, Father Cashin, uh, you, uh, Father Cashin Uhouse, who was close friends with Cardinal Silvestrini, uh, who was the former, I guess, Secretary of State in the Vatican. So at that point, we did have uh, people who had some power within the Vatican. And also uh, through that, I mean, it was amazing. Cardinal Poupard, um, uh, Cardinal Echigaray. So we don't have those kinds of connections now. And we've been doing our best over a, a number of years to try and arrange a meeting um, with Pope Francis. And to get back to the point <laughs> that you raised, what, you know, what, what will we say to him? Um, I think it, at this point in history, there's just a confluence of global problems. I mean, serious crises that in one way or another could lead to the dis huge destruction of human life, either through uh, 
pandemics, not being able to bring them under control, or uh, war, or starvation. Uh, you see just this great imbalance in the economies of every country and, and really is you know, on the global stage of tremendous uh, technologies coming into being, which are displacing the need for human beings to do much of the economic work. And while most people's incomes during this pandemic have been going down, I mean, many people have lost their jobs, businesses have just gone under, you see that because of the way our system is structured, it's, it's crazy. The richest people in the world have seen their wealth grow by, I think it was a trillion dollars since, the, um, since uh, last March. And this is not to target the very rich. It is though, I think, an indictment of the system and Pope Francis was um, early on um, in his pontificate, he, he was drawing attention to that. It's, there's something wrong in the system. And he saw the powerlessness of most people, the growing wealth and power gap, um, but also in terms of um, opportunity, inclusion in the economy, power in the economy, uh, each of us could have in the economy, that there was just a, a widening gap. So I think he is still does not understand and as his advisors do not understand what some of the systemic reasons are for that this has happened. And so it's not a matter of targeting any particular group. And I think what's very important that comes out of the social encyclicals is that we have to respect every human life, every human being as something very precious and unique, but also understand we're tool makers, we're social tool makers. And we create these things called institutions like our money system, our tax system. Ultimately, it's to help us live better. Not, I mean, it's the, there's a moral objective here, which we've forgotten about. So we, um, in over many years, and this is through the experience of you know, many people for decades, and, and then what Mike has found in his studies, there's been certain ideas that have been developing over centuries that they were kind of missing each other. They needed each other. And one, for example, was the stream of thought that eventually became named by Pius XI as social justice. Now, the term was out there, but he gave it a very specific meaning. And at the same time, you had another strain of thought, which was looking at the idea of pro property, its importance in a democracy, and how you acquire property, and the rights that come with property, and the powers and, that come with property. And so you had an economic stream of thought that was based on the empowerment of every human being, not the state, not the collective, not a few, but every human being, it's, this is necessary to make the economy run well. And then you had this idea of social justice, which is looking at um, how we structure all of our institutions to lift up every person, but also understanding that when the institutions and the common good, something is not right, people don't have that equal access, 
we have to change the system and we cannot do it as isolated individuals. We must do it in an organized way together. And we have to start with a common set of principles and universal values, such we would say truth, love, beauty, and justice, that you have to recognize that there's also responsibilities that we have not only to ourselves and each other, but really to the whole of the common good. So you have these gigantic ideas. I mean, that just from the minds of the most brilliant people over centuries, and they were going past each other. And so you never had a way to, in a practical way, bring about the vision of, let's say, Leo the Thirteenth and Pius the Eleventh. This: How do you come up with a broad distribution of economic power through broad distribution of private property, not socialized property, but individual private property and that's where the ideas of finance came in and you had to have an idea of a, a corporation which became a, a very important vehicle for enabling lots of people to become private owners in an organized way even if they weren't you know brilliant farmers or you know uh, engineers or whatever so it's it's in that that we want to present a new paradigm and we call this economic personalism, which was amazing. We just, you know, that's a fairly recent label that we've we've taken on. We've been calling it the just third way. But in going back into some of the thinkings of uh, John Paul II and Martin Luther King on personalism, we saw an economic counterpart. So I'll let Mike then uh, make some comments. See, I'm picturing you walking in going, you will do it this way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That would require, you know, like a watch, you know, to yeah. hypnotize them. And, you know, to be brutally frank, the situation is far... No pun intended. Like <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, to be brutally Michael. <laughs> the, you know... The whole historical, economic, uh, theoretical, philosophical situation is hideously complex. I mean, it, it is almost an oversimplification to say, well, there are two strains of thought, social justice and economic justice. Uh, what even just going into the development of what we call social justice, if you want to start a barroom fight, just say social justice. Uh, it a very very brief history is given in the book, and that only just it, it's the tip of the tip of the iceberg. But it is so complex, and then you get into the economics. For instance, everybody thinks that well, not everybody, but most people think that economics is this monolithic science. Well, if you ever want to start a fist, another fist fight among econo economists, you've got three mainstream schools of thought today in economics, and they're all basically the same, even though they think they disagree on everything. They don't. Binary economics, which is the economics that is it, we put into economic personalism, is of an entirely different school. And even to explain the differences between the two schools would take a couple of shows. Uh, and still probably confuse you because most people just automatically think in a way that is different from the way that we think in personalism. 
they it, it is so complex uh, and I realize it doesn't help you I need to tell you to confuse you by saying it's confusing but I'm just trying to figure out what bars you're going to with all these <laughs> fights. Yeah, right. These fights <laughs> social and economic justice. Don't hang out with Grainy at night. Yes, <laughs> it's an exciting life. Actually, I'm, I'm, I, I just watch Japanese public television. Then I see all the fights I want to. Ninjas and everything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So how would you explain to the Pope how economic personalism addresses both the immediate crisis threatening people's basic survival and the need for long-term solutions through the restructuring of basic economic institutions? Well, I think um, economic personalism is at the heart based on justice, which is going to be the way things ought to work, the way the system, if it's well-constructed and well-ordered, this is the framework. Um, but it also realizes that no human creation is going to be perfect. It's always going to be in having to deal with changing circumstances. And there's, you know, you have the human element. So that's where the idea of charity comes in and, you know, making sure people are kept alive. You know, they, they're not going to enjoy justice if they're, they've starved to death. So there is a place for dealing with people's immediate needs. And I would say that the world altogether, you know, there are no excuses not to be able to uh, make sure that no one dies of starvation. It's just, I mean, there's so much waste right now of all sorts of things, including food, that there is no excuse. But and now that, we're killing off chickens and yeah, animals by the millions. We're burning, you know, huge mountains of fruit. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely absurd. So there is right now in the system enough in an emergency situation to meet people's urgent needs, their survival needs. But that the problem is that in uh, the way people, our policymakers are, and leaders are thinking, we get trapped at that level where it's now, okay, um, we need to move, take from, you know, this pot and move it over here so we can feed people. Well, look, this pot here happens to belong to people, you know, it's their income. So it, it does not offer a structural and long-term solution. You have to think in terms of the system. And what economic personalism is really, it starts from the, the dignity and importance and empowerment of each human being. And we realize human beings have a hierarchy of needs and survival and security are, are the most basic. And that's where economics comes in. That's what economics is meant to cover, is what you need to, um, to meet your material needs. But beyond that, you also want to have a system that gives people equal access and opportunity to whatever social tools are needed, such as education, so that they can develop fully and they can contribute to the world around them. Um, Don, before you go on, can you define economics? So some people, when they hear, especially now when uh, we talk about the economy, 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 you're killing the economy, everyone thinks of Wall Street. For some reason, everyone immediately goes to Wall Street, they don't think about the house. Like, remember Home Ec? Yeah. Uh, 
can you just give a look? Can you give a little short thing on what is when we, the, when people talk about the economy, they're not just talking about the people in Wall Street, right? Right, and you know, I don't give a, a quick way of describing it. It's, it's the way that we produce together in order to create the things that we need to consume and also have the means to buy up the things that are produced. So it's always having to look at, in terms of two sides of an equation, uh, production and consumption. Okay, and so how we do that, how we order ourselves, how we, uh, for example, the, the question of, you know, how, first how we produce, and then how do we distribute what's produced is gonna be the problem of an economy. And what we're saying is that the most just and empowering and um, liberating form of economy is one in which each person has the equal opportunity and access to the means to produce and participate fully in a free market economy. And we say that a free, free non-monopolistic open economy is the best because that is the system where each person, if they have their economic power, their their purchasing power, they can go to the market and say, okay, I, I want this thing here. How much are you selling it for? And the seller will say how much, and the purchaser will say, well, uh, that's more than I want to pay for. Uh, so I'm going to look somewhere else. And so you're going to have all of these ways that producers and buyers can interact and arrive at what each will consider a fair price. Otherwise, if you don't do that, you have government official or a technocrat coming in, you know, some the power of the state determining what is, you know, what is something worth to you, you know, someone else saying what, how I value something. And no one can do that. You know, you don't want $500 cantaloupes? Yeah, exactly. No, thank you. <laughs> so this is, you know, in looking at human freedom and human choice in the marketplace, it's you, you must have power. And power, as we've said in previous shows, really comes from property because that's telling you, okay, how much do I deserve in, you know, when we produce something? What is my fair share? What am I entitled to in terms of the fruits of what was produced, and am I able to have say so over how what I own is used? So that's the right to the fruits and the right to control. So that is what is missing in today's, uh, the, the economy of every country. We are in a wage welfare system. I mean, you can, you can uh, lump together all capitalists and all socialists and all Keynesian and all all these other systems as wage welfare. They aren't thinking in terms of really what brings power to each person in the economy. So that economic personalism is is really looking at the structuring of the system in order to enhance human dignity, to protect it, and give each person the means to protect their own uh, their own source of power, their rights. Um, and there was something that occurred to me also that um, when we talk about economic personalism as a just third way, and that always kind of, that can start fights too, as Mike can say, because 
Where are you guys hanging out at? <laughs> yeah, this is another fight. Okay, third way. What's, you know, this third way? And there are a lot of groups calling themselves third way. You know, even uh, Scandinavian economics is third way. So there's a problem that we face. We were using this term before, before all, you know, how it's now commonly used. But really, in terms of if we contrast capitalism in terms of what would be considered an ideal form of capitalism versus socialism and communism, what would be considered the ideal form, we find that in socialism, for example, or communism, you have responsibilities as an individual, but no individual rights in terms of the economy. You know, that's the collective is where the power is, or the state is where the power is. On the other hand, under capitalism, which is an economic form of individualism, okay, you have rights, but no sense of responsibility, you know, beyond your own private personal rights. Mm-hmm. That this is something maybe you do, maybe you don't, but it's it's not really part of what you see as an, a, um, a healthy system. Is that, and how do you structure this in? So we're looking at a system where you have, each person has their individual rights or economic rights, and that's mainly through property and the enforcement of property. Um, but also, how do you educate them to see that we're in this together? You cannot have a healthy economy by yourself. At some point, those, you know, maybe they become trillionaires. At that point, what that's saying is that they now have the purchasing power. They, they are productive. They're hyper-productive. And as Mike said, production equals income. So that they're able to now purchase all these things, but being human beings, there's a certain limitation as to what you can actually consume. Everyone else now doesn't have the purchasing power. They're relying on jobs that just got destroyed by technology. So you've got this huge imbalance. And at some point, I don't care how rich you are at a certain point, if most of the world dies off, You know, you're going to be left there all by yourself, and you know, it, um, you need. We need each other, and we need to have a balanced system without coercion, without taking away. And what we were would be offering to the Pope is to uh, to uh, present a system that would do this. Yeah, basically to summarize, uh, <laughs> we. <laughs> We can say that economic personalism is based on the demands of human dignity, which starts with justice, but is fulfilled by charity. As a number of the popes have said, quoting, I believe, St. Augustine, charity is the soul of justice. So justice must be fulfilled before you can even call it charity. Charity does not substitute for justice. That's the first point. The second is Economics is, you know, to summarize, this, this, the science of, you know, the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services. Uh, the problem is, then, this is the reason why economics is called the dismal science from what Malthus came, you know, came up with, you know, Thomas Malthus, the, the, the Anglican clergyman who uh, was rather satanic in his economics, cutting out most people. As far as Malthus was concerned, most people couldn't participate in production. They were just consumers. Uh, 
and the distribution of goods relied on whether these people could produce, and of course they couldn't produce, so most of them were going to starve to death because they could they would breed, you know, up to the limit of the food supply and then eat everybody else out of house and home. Well, nonsense, said Jean-Baptiste Say, Say's Law of Markets. Uh, if you can't produce with your labor, you must produce with your technology. And the way to produce with your technology is to own the technology. Unfortunately, that's as far as Jean-Baptiste Say went. How on earth am I, who have no means to purchase this capital, supposed to become an owner of capital? Well, that's what Louis Kelso solved. He, Kelso and Mortimer Adler, who's helped systematize his, Kelso's thought, in my opinion, uh, turned Malthus's dismal science into what we can call the hopeful science, and so Pope Francis doesn't have to reject, you know, the principles of economics in order to have a decent life for most people. What you have to do is apply the principles of economics in a hopeful way, not a dismal way, which is what economic personalism does. And I think not only hopeful, it just is common sense. Oh. It, it, you, you have to produce in order to consume. That's really the basic idea, I think, that say was was explaining and so um we have to have a system that allows for that and what kelso also brought that was needed was the idea of well what's how do you do that what's the practical means to do that and he saw it was in the concept of money money and credit being sort of two sides of the same coin. They have to do with promises and fulfillment of promises. Um, and he saw that if you constrain the financing of you know, your, your production to past savings, past accumulations, meaning those who've managed to accumulate enough after they met their needs and to that that would be the source of purchasing new capital equipment, you know, uh, land, structures, whatever. And what happens with that is that the, those who have get more. Those who don't have meaning money are left out and they, they'll get poorer and poorer or more dependent on those who can hire them. So we needed to find a way of financing um, what Leo the Thirteenth was calling for, which is where the majority of people, and I think he would probably say, ideally, it would be all people, um, have uh, a means to become owners and want to become owners and see that as, as a, a good thing. Yeah, the specific language he used was as many as possible of the people. Right, and it was to induce, which is an interesting yeah. word. Um, but so, if you don't have this way of financing our economy that is going to open the door to more and more people that it's part of the system and part of what you're entitled to as a human being and as a as a participant in an economy if you don't have that then you're going to always be trapped in this wage welfare system so that ideas like the great reset you know where you know supposedly people will no longer you know no one will own anything, and I, I take it that that includes the twenty-seven guardians. You know, no, 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 no. They're yeah, not they part of nobody. 
Yeah, they're they're gonna. We have nobody. Okay, so instead of saying that, because that's ridiculous, so, someone has to make decisions in the in the economy. Uh, Klaus Schwab ain't giving up anything. <laughs> yeah, no, no way, you know, in heck. <laughs> so then the question is, looking to the future. Not going back and blaming those and saying, oh, they, you know, they, they stole the labor from workers, you know, through the centuries. And now, now labor deserves to be compensated. Well, if you do that, you'll never stop fighting. So we, what Kelso came up with is, and his ideas were not original. He, he uh, based a lot on the ideas of Harold Moulton. Um, who was the, the, I guess, the first president of the Brookings Institution for, and I think for 20 years. They, from 1928 to 1952. Yeah, they, they just totally expunged him from the thinking of that institution. It's now totally Keynesian. Um, but in any case, Kelso, as a corporate finance lawyer, understood the power of credit, capital credit, and using that to acquire capital assets that would pay for themselves out of their own future stream of profits. So if you could take that ability, which was now only available to the rich, and you could extend it. First, he did it through to corporate employees, through employee stock ownership plans. A way, it provided a way that all workers, everyone in a company could borrow through a mechanism, a trust, that would be able to purchase, um, take, get loans for the company to acquire whatever capital assets it needed and then repay the loan as a corporation through its profits. And meanwhile, everyone would be gaining their own individual property stake in the corporation. So that is kind of a sloppy way of explaining how ESOPs work. But essentially it proved that workers without any assets and without payroll deductions could acquire shares up to 100% of the shares in their company on credit repayable with future corporate profits. So then the question comes in, because now we're at a different stage than when Kelso started introducing this in the, the late 50s through, I guess, probably through the 90s is, you know, things have been fairly steady in terms of the need for human labor. But suddenly you see, you know, when you hit the 2000s and then 2010, there's an, a, a huge, a dramatic increase of advanced technologies such as artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, advanced communication systems that have really just wiped out. They've decimated certain types of jobs. You just don't need them. And that even goes up to the highest types of jobs, even doctors, you don't need as many. If you have, for example, these robots that can do the most delicate types of surgery, you don't need quite the same number of medical personnel. Mm -hmm. So we all have a problem we're facing. How are we gonna earn a, an income, a decent income so we can provide for ourselves and our families and then move on to the more important activities, human activities. And in your conversation, since it's in the labor section of Dare to Let Us Dream, Francis says the UBI. Yes, yes. And that that is, okay, an interesting thing. That could go back to where you have a crisis and you need to make sure that people have enough to survive. There may be a temporary need to 
you know, you, you get it from where you can, you distribute it. Hopefully you compensate. If you've taken it from someone, hopefully they're compensated in some way. But at least in the short term, in a, in a sense, you could say welfare and uh, social safety uh, security programs and um, other welfare types of programs are a form of universal basic income. Okay, it may come in the form of vouchers, it may come in the form of, you know, direct services, but you are essentially making sure people don't starve to death, don't die for lack of emergency medical care. They have some kind of shelter. So in a sense, that exists already, but that is not a solution. That is a temporary measure. Yeah, uh, in Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum, in paragraph 22, he pointed this out. He said, yes, everyone should give in charity out of your surplus, meaning what you don't need to maintain your, you, your, you and your dependents and at your proper station in life. In other words, don't starve yourself to be able to give something to somebody else. That's not proper to your station in life. Mm -hmm. But that's charity, in, except in extreme cases. Then he says, then it's justice. But it's clear from the context that this is an emergency situation. Then the state may make a redistribution of goods just to keep people alive. But you don't, you can't keep things in that situation. It is not consistent with the demands of human dignity to maintain people in an emergency situation in order to keep them alive. The rest of the encyclical, without saying so, then gives the prescription for what do we do so that we don't have this emergency situation and then he gets into well you should make certain that as many as possible of the people prefer to own meaning prefer to own capital but you can't stop at just redistribution because first of all that's not a solution second if you really want to discourage producers from producing say you produce and what was it, Abraham Lincoln's definition of slavery? You sweat and toil and earn bread and I'll eat it. Okay, you just made the producers slaves of all the non-producers. And throughout this, I don't think the word property is mentioned anywhere. In the land section, it's basically the uh, UN uh, uh, 2030, uh, Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development that he speaks of. And lodging is basically the same. I mean, he does talk about how cities are ugly and noisy and chaotic and you need to get out of stuff like that, which we would agree on. And he also mentions how, you know, the people don't want to eat poisoned chickens or apples with pesticides on it, which, yes, we nobody wants that. But, uh, yes, the uh, World Economic Forum part ideas is not exactly what we should go to. Yeah, and I think part of it is... You know he's right. I mean, let's let's accept that most people don't want to eat poison food. They want to be able to breathe clean air, drink clean water. You know, be able to live in a dwelling that is you know comfortable. Not so all these things, and and they want to be free. Okay, let let's just assume that. The question is, how do we enable people to have the means to do that, not to depend on anyone else to make that decision for them, which is a problem of the wage welfare system, it creates dependency 
rather than truly uh, free and liberated people. And, and one of the things is Mike was talking uh, and he was mentioning charity and the really the moral imperative of charity in terms of uh, really a, 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 even a just society. So there's, we see that there's a connection between charity and justice. However, one of the problems is that we've confused the two things. And that's why our system gets, it, it has elements of forced charity and it has elements of justice that really isn't justice. Yeah, which actually flatly contradicts what Leo XIII said because when he says, this is charity, a duty not enforced by human law. Yes, and that you can't force charity, or it's not charity. That goes to that phrase that almost said it's the exact same words. The church says, "Will you help these people?" When the state says, "You will help these people." Yes, or you must. Yeah, that's right. And so, also in um, Faree's introduction to social justice, there's really a you know beautiful section that discusses the difference between charity and justice. And charity, uh, looking at the root caritas, which is love, um, that is something that's given without any expectation of return. And if you look at uh, Moses Maimonides, was a Jewish scholar who talked about eight levels of charity. And, and the lowest form is very ostentatious. You give to the poor person and you say, aren't I a generous person? And you let everyone know around you that you gave this you know, poor person some money. So aren't I wonderful and charitable? That's the lowest level. Then it goes to giving anonymously. But then the highest level of charity, it's where that starts to cross into justice. And that is you give to a person to enable them to get into business and become self-sufficient and to become charitable themselves. Yeah, exactly, and, even more specific than that, Maimonides said, you loan someone money to set right. themselves up in business. Yeah. Yes, you're right, Mike. You don't just give it to them. Yeah, you're right, you're right. That's To show you how smart Maimonides was, he corresponded with Aquinas. Yeah, they had some geniuses, you know, pen pals, pretty good. Uh, so it's really, I think, in terms of a workable system that is just, uh, we have to look at the structures of these things and the, the purpose of the structures, but understand that things are not perfect, uh, human creations and systems are not perfect, and that's where this caritas, always keeping the attention towards the good of each person and wanting them to develop and become more fully human and to want them to become adults in the you know in terms of society the functions of society and, and the economy so it must be there because humans concepts of justice their applications are going to be deficient insufficient imperfect and so eventually things change and they put pressure on the system and that's where you've got to go back to what is your motivation here? And it must start with this sense of, of love, of caritas. Well, I know what I would say to Holy Father if I had a couple minutes. One would be uh, uh, start being part of the problem, be part of the solution. We're supposed to be preaching truth, not fear, the leading the light of the world, not being part of the darkness. So what would you guys uh, 
say if he said, "What do you want me to do again?" I know what I'd say. <laughs> yes, we're more diplomatic than you are. I, I know. I'm, I didn't. I never said I was polished. <laughs> That's right. Well, we see in in the book what we would ask for Pope Francis to do, and I would say first of all, if we've been effective, and you know, pray that we will be. Um, in communicating enough so that Pope Francis sees that, yes, there's something new and different here. So that Pope Francis not only will ask the scholars at the Vatican to study this and come up with their challenges and their questions, but we would ask that he look at, consider these ideas very deeply. And then if he sees some merit to them, we think that he can help open up a forum where the ideas can be presented and debated by those who are still proponents of the wage welfare system. Um, but we need someone at that level as a communicator to start posing these principles, these ideas, and opening them up to challenge and helping them get into academia, into the institutions of learning. So that's what we ask for in the book is, uh, Number one, he needs to really look at these seriously. And there's, I mean, there's so, so much material behind this, but to write an encyclical on economic justice, because we see that that has really become even more um, potentially dangerous than even the word social justice, which has become sort of a blanket word for, you know, we got all these problems and, you know, we need the government to come in and correct them. And so that's become what people generally see as social justice, but economic justice, that's even less understood. And we need to start looking at things in terms of principles. So principles are not meant to change. They may be applied in slightly different ways, depending on the circumstance, but we need universal principles. So what Mortimer Adler and Lewis Kelso uh, defined were three basic system principles of economic justice, participative justice, distributive justice, and social justice at that at the level of the economy being the corrective um, principle if the participation and distribution are not in balance. So if with those three simple principles, we can now attach some meaning and substance to each of those how you participate in the economy, not just as a worker, you know, not just as a consumer, but as a producer and an owner. How do you get your just distributions? Well, you better have a just mechanism for that and not one that's arbitrary. So you need a free and non-monopolistic marketplace, but you need private property because that tells you how much you are due as an owner. So you have to have private property, you have to have a free and non-monopolistic market to determine prices and wages and profits. But you also want to make sure that the state itself should not own anything. It does not have to own anything. People think you have to have the government owning stuff. No, you can actually set up the means by which human beings can be the owners and make the decision. It may be for certain things they decide, like, um, uh, wilderness areas, for example. What's uh, Don? What's your uh, slogan you like put on email? Oh, uh, okay, just to bring it down to thank you, Steve. Own or be owned. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <As> he, 
helps me become more concise. Exactly. Yes. So thank you, Steve. That's what I'll say to him. It boils down to own or be owned. Let's not beat around the bush. Let's go give it to us straight. Okay. There you go. I like you. You can maybe be our spokesperson here. And then all we have to do is say, Your Holiness. First, we would like to see an encyclical on economic personalism. Under 100,000 pages, or how, how long are we talking? <laughs> well, when you consider that Rerum Novarum was around 15,000 words, and it was very effective, Frank, in my opinion, encyclicals have been getting just a trifle too long for circular letters, which is what encyclical means. Yes. When I get a letter, I don't want a bundle a foot thick. You don't want War and Peace to be smaller than it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was not Pope Leo Tolstoy the first. I mean, <laughs> But number two, possibly, you know, an, another ecumenical council, a Vatican III. Now, this is my opinion, but it's supported by my research. The first Vatican council was called to condemn the new things of socialism, modernism, and this esotericism. The second Vatican council was called, and after I did all the work on this and, and developed this opinion of mine, I found that Evelyn Waugh, you know, the, the British writer, shared this opinion. I thought, you mean I did all that work when all I had to do was read a couple of his essays? Uh, Vatican II was called to implement Pius XI's social doctrine. I think most people completely missed that in, in Vatican II, which is why they say, they talk about, oh, Vatican II, the robber council, Vatican II was horrible, Vatican II, blah, blah, blah. No, Vatican II is essential but most people don't understand why. So what we need is Vatican III to teach economic personalism and to propose that it be implemented, which will lead to a global conference on from people of all faiths and philosophies headed by the Catholic Church, of course, because you know Catholic Church is number one, of course. Uh, but sorry for the commercial. Uh, but you know, to get all faiths and philosophies behind this initiative because it affects everybody on earth. You can't just keep going the way you're going. You can't, you know, hope that everyone will be generous, place themselves under the 27 guardians and just go along with global socialism, capitalism, or whatever you want to call it. I call it the global servile state, stealing Hilaire, Hilaire Belloc's term. But so basically three things, an encyclical, an ecumenical council, and then a global conference. Well, hopefully we get this call. I know that I've heard that the Vatican watches some of the channels because uh, some sermons will oh, got them irritated. Right so uh, maybe they, maybe they're watching. So hey, everybody in Rome. <laughs> uh, so you get to them. <laughs> Don, Michael, thank you very much. And yes, please go to the website. Website will be linked underneath in the show notes. Underneath in the show notes, uh, click underneath the video, click the show more sections, the drop down box, the link to buy the book is on there, the link to the website, Michael's blog. Uh, we don't have Don's email address yet on there, but if she wants us to, you can put it in there and you can tell her how much you appreciate her being on the show. Or uh, <laughs> Don, Michael, have a great day. Talk to you later. Okay. Thank you so much, Steve.